0: shiny happy faces this morning. You're Welcome willing. to this episode of the Malt Pill your Happy Hour here on WEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, as well as YouTube and BCTV and all the wonderful technology we have out there right now. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the show with me today, regular contributor and representative, Emily Kornheiser. Hey,
1: Emily. Hi, Olga, good morning.
0: Good morning. And then also Drew Restley, and she is the Director of Performance Improvement at the Agency of Human Services for the state of Vermont. And she's joining us today less in her role at the agency and more as her role as a planner, because one of uh, Drew's expertise is to kind of look at the reality of a place and and look at the planning for the future and kind of how those two come together, or sometimes don't, as <laughs> as might be the um the case right now in our world of upheaval. So welcome, Drew. So glad you can join us today.
2: Thank you so much, Olga. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Um, so let's start, Drew. I think Emily said before we went on camera something really great. You know, she talked about planning and she said so often we never know what the future is i mean we never do but right now everything is just pick up sticks with with the pandemic and some people are still in crisis some people have entered recovery we're all not on the same page um what is it like right now trying to plan for the future and life beyond covid with Hmm. with everything that's happening
2: i mean that That's a great question. I feel like that is the question. It makes me wonder about, like, what are the tools that we use to maintain a sense of knowing in the first place? Like, I agree with Representative Kornheiser that the future is always uncertain. We're always living in some ambiguity, but we try to root ourselves in particular ways and find find ways to feel familiar. Um, and also, like, we are in some control over what's going on, um, that we have some ability to, to manage and control how things will move forward. Um, and I think that, you know, like, data process requirements, to some extent, like routine and accountability that's based in routine are all ways of doing that in a more collective space. And so it's interesting now to think about, for me, the difference between like operational planning. How do I respond in real time? What information and data do I have available to help me you know, operationalize some, some response strategy to COVID in the community, for instance, versus how do I plan for the long term into the future? How are we going to structure, for instance, the opening of schools? Or how are we going to structure, um, I mean, honestly, the reopening of anything in downtown? Um, in a way that uses current information, but also builds towards a collective future that we just can't even necessarily envision. So the same tools, the tools that we use to keep ourselves familiar and in control in the moment are actually not that useful necessarily, building a future that we haven't experienced yet. And so then what are the tools that are useful for that? And I've just been thinking a lot recently about imagination. Um, so like in what ways can what we envision is what we envision constrained by what we've experienced now and how do we expand our perspectives to understand what's possible and i think that has everything to do with this conversation about race that's coming up especially in vermont which is obviously overwhelmingly white what is our collective constraint on imagination what can we imagine and what can't we imagine as white people in vermont
1: mm-hmm i've been um very aware since the very beginning of the pandemic, that each of us, you know, is living in our own. And I'll start with, under normal circumstances, we are all living in our own bubble. And one of the great struggles of planning is getting people to the same to at least some common ground of reality in order to have sort of divergent imaginations then line up, right? Um, But... Right now, I think we're all hyper aware of even just the most basic understanding of our reality or our lived experience in this moment is so different from person to person. And that, you know, I think one of the great reckonings around race in Vermont or in this country is so many white people finally realizing that people of color have a totally different experience of the world than they do. and that's sort of, you know, we could say like, that's what the beginning of postmodernity was, was realizing that we all have, you know, are all coming from different lives and have different realities and need to find sort of a shared path together. Um, but understanding that from an identity and intersectional perspective can bring a lot to planning in this moment, knowing that, you know, some of us have jobs, and some of us don't, and some of us love never leaving our houses, and some of us are terrified, and some of us are all of those things at once. Um, some of us are terrified of the police, some of us feel safe from the police. And so how that how that um, keeps us from imagining too, how many of those fears constrain our imagination to plan for the future
2: mm.
1: is um, it's really
2: difficult. Right, mm-hmm. right there are so many um, actual experiences, and then there are so many stories of experiences, and then there are so many representations of stories of experiences, that sometimes it can feel like maybe we're getting lost in what information actually is telling us. (laughs) And that's to say nothing of the projection and like sort of entitlement to story and a belief about what's happening that can also play out all of which mixes up together in a planning process
1: can you tell Um, me what you mean
2: about an entitlement to a story yeah so i think you know emily i'm thinking about that video that we watched the single story um maybe we can send it in the add it to the facebook Mm -hmm. link or something like that yeah if you you send me a link
1: we can we can put it online Yeah.
2: yeah Will you tell us a little
1: bit about like do a brief overview before you talk about it
2: Yes, the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, I think, speaks about um, the danger of a single story and how when we absorb, I'm, this is a paraphrase, definitely watch, definitely watch the TED talk, but she talks about how when we internalize one story or one primary story about people, for instance, um, we can live our whole lives with the assumption that we understand something that we believe something to be true, we've seen it. She talks about growing up and seeing only media representations of white people. And so just having a story that people that are written about, whose lives are written about would be white. And so she, well, I don't want to tell her story, but the message that came across to me and that I think is really useful in this conversation is how easy it is to.
0: Oh, dear, we have a little um, snag with our technology. So sorry, listeners.
1: Um, Shall I continue? Yes, please do. Oh, Oh, Drew, you're back. back. Sorry, you froze there for a minute. No, it's okay. Such is life here in the pandemic.
2: Yeah, Yeah, such um,
1: is life. So you were saying um, the last thing we heard was saying that only white people would be written about.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. And so when only white people were written about in the books that she was reading, she sort of internalized this just idea. Uh, I'm not even sure how conscious it was that the people whose lives would be written about, the people whose lives mattered to write about were white people. And so when she would write her own stories, she would realize that she was using you know traditionally white european english names for the characters in her stories um and she talks about realizing as she grew up and started reading black authors for instance how how she had internalized that single story and i think that that single story danger is with us all the time and i'm just thinking about specifically my own experience in Vermont and working in the the human services agency, a health and human services agency. And when I say being in Vermont, I mean a state that is overwhelmingly white and that has a consciousness in some ways that you feel in the mainstream around class. Um, And I think increasingly about race, but I have observed in my time at um, the agency of human services sometimes that there's like a people can call each other on or you'll hear in the room that there is an implicit assumption of these sort of middle class values which is something that's talked about and Emily I feel like that's talked about in the state house too sometimes so maybe you've got a perspective on that but I think about how our own experiences. we could certainly talk about it more yeah our own experiences <laughs> projected become a single story that we reinforce and so we don't challenge each other that becomes a narrative that then can guide policy, that can guide decisions, that can guide resource allocation, um, and our assumptions about what's possible through programs and strategies. And so we wind up, I think, um, living in sort of a representation of reality that's false instead of actually responding to what's happening in people's lives and listening to one another and understanding that. So Emily, I didn't mean to get so maybe that was a tangent, maybe not. But when you were speaking, I was thinking about that dynamic of being um, in relationship to one another and how through relationship is where we sort of collapse all of that representational reality and have an opportunity to actually understand what's going on. And so in a relationship with someone you know, in your neighborhood or someone in your town that you've met, I think that the possibility for that happening is there. And then it's interesting to think, how does that same relational deepening of awareness and possibility for opening up happen at an organizational level or at a system level? What does it look like to actually be, You know, I've heard the phrase before, like proximate to the problem, which is coming to mind right now. But I think the idea is like, how do we truly understand what's going on from a system's perspective? in communities, so the decisions that we're actually making that are attempts to impact community availability of resources or policy that enables people to participate or not in certain programs, for instance, um, actually is useful and relevant. So, I, when I oh, sorry, go ahead, Emily. I'm so are you sure? Yeah,
1: um, when I think about this idea of community and sort of single stories in the context of school reopening, um, the Piece that I start with is what is school for, Mm -hmm. and we each have. And I think you know that essential question works with almost any aspect of government. What is this piece of piece of government for? And what is school for has a completely different answer for different people based on their class background, their educational background, their ethnic background, their racial background, Um, and so. If each of us are answering that question differently, you know, school is to make educated citizens. You can just do that at home. School is so that kids are safe and cared for during the day. Some people can do that at home. School is for kids to access resources. School is for kids to become civilized, whatever. There's a, you know, such a huge range in what is school for and what a teacher is for. And during the pandemic, we have an incredibly difficult time being in community with each other. That's the, I mean, that's the blow of all of this, that we can't, we have such a harder time being in community and relationship with each other when we're all in our little pods or only interacting with sort of the folks that we work with. Um, And so it makes it at a time when we need to really rethink some of our basic assumptions and really use um, the most imagination we've been called to use in a very long time, we have a much harder time mixing up our stories with each other. And the fear that we're all under because of the unknown makes it very hard for us to then project from those mixed stories up into our imaginations. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so at this time where we absolutely need these tools more than we ever have before, I think we all have a much harder time accessing them than we might have in the
2: past. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think what resonates for me is uh, to, to kind of piggyback on what, what you just said, Emily, which I, I feel is really spot on. Um, you know, it makes me think of process and how do we get people to the table and the number of times as a journalist, I have covered events or covered meetings where the conversation is, well, our, our experiences is one thing and the data is another, and they're not meeting at all. Um, and like, how do you reconcile that? Because I, I don't, because I often feel like we're always looking for truth, quote unquote, and I often feel truth is a little bit more of a Venn diagram where things, you find the truth where things overlap, rather than in one or the other. But the other thing that resonates with me, and again, just thinking of when I cover things, is, you know, how do you get people to the table? Because one of the the great things about how we tend to practice democracy in Vermont is it's led by those who show up. But one of the downsides is it's led by those who show up. So how do you know the difference between Um, an immediate problem and a squeaky wheel or maybe they're not there's no difference but but like kind of navigating all those different overlaps of people's experience and who shows up and who feels they can show up and who speaks and who feels they can speak um is is just kind of what's bubbling for me right now
1: before i know i want you to answer that question drew but i want to sort of um... Add one element to this so Olga when you said a Venn diagram um, one of the Venn diagrams for me of of, um, systems planning that is most important is a Venn diagram where the three circles are the folks who are most impacted by the decision the folks who would um, are the most expert in carrying out the work um, and then evidence-based practices and sort of that Venn diagram and meeting meeting in the middle of those three things in order to make decisions, is it's very difficult to not be sort of leaning very strongly into one of those pieces or the other. So say, you know, the most impacted sometimes feels like the squeaky wheel and sometimes actually you're getting the most impacted. And so just constantly um, whatever that motion means um back and forth between those pieces um and the balance of that i think Mm -hmm. is an interesting part of that
2: yes yeah i think i've been thinking a lot about the difference between managing to maintain like emily we've talked about this this like sustaining energy dynamic earlier in the summer but um I think that so many of our systems are built to manage and maintain course rather than to maintain a uh, rather than to maintain a container that can shift direction and shift course based on energy. So like what is the difference between a container that holds energy, manages it, tries to solve for certain things that it can predict might happen, you know, risk, compliance, even having no vision at all within that container? Um, is somewhat, can be kind of a closed loop. Like, have we accomplished what we said we were going to accomplish? Like all of this can happen within the context of an organization that is not responsive to changing conditions. And so what's the difference between managing change and managing for change, managing for emergent change? Like, it occurs to me that A lot of the programmatic work that we do the funding streams that support it at the end of the day are a little bit locked in like it takes a long time to shift how those things can change. Like I remember first entering state government. um, In an entry level position in the governor's office back in like 2011 or 12 and learning about a lot of programs, government programs for the first time. And one of them was reach up our TANF program in Vermont and receiving a lot of calls and emails from Vermonters who were, because I re- answered the calls, answered the phones, responded to the emails and tried to navigate state government as someone who really didn't understand it. Cause I grew up with the privilege of not needing to engage with government very much. Um, and being like, I don't understand why this person wouldn't be eligible for this program like like i don't understand you know like what's going on here and learning over time especially after i started working at ahs that there's only so much like there's a there are very innovative leaders at reach up in vermont like we are lucky in this state to have such incredible people at the helm but there's there are tight constraints that you're working within from the federal government like it's the program was not designed to solve poverty. It wasn't designed to, to redistribute wealth in this country in a way that can actually reorient power and who holds power. I don't mean to get off topic here, but all of that feels related to me because at the end of the day, are the processes that are in place that are meant to look at evidence-based practices, look at pol- or evidence-based practices, the staffing that would be required or the, the competencies that would be required to truly implement those and the resources that support them, um, and the people for whom they're serving, like, are those, like, what is the outermost container of imagination that those are working within? I guess is the question. And are they actually designed to reach outside of what's possible? Or are they designed to manage what we already know is possible? And unfortunately what we really know is possible and are familiar with is inequity. hmm So that I think that's a huge question. So then how how do we plan in order to shape shift? Like what does it look like to be flexible enough that the decisions we make and the policies we pass are truly about moving into unknown territory? Well, and, and then what's I, the data we collect about what we don't know is going to happen or not? When I
1: think about imagination and possibility of imagination, um, I think an assumption that so many of us hold in our bodies, if not in our intellect, um, is that people who are out of work, poor, needing government services, deserve it. And I think the pandemic has been revolutionary on so many of our consciousnesses. Is that a word? Anyway. We'll go with um, it. (laughs) <laughs> because it's shown us that, you know, millions of people can be out of work and need government services um, through no fault of their own. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my intellect and parts of my body have always believed that, you know, poverty is not the fault of the person in poverty or government services are there for everyone. but in terms of a societal shift in this understanding, this is an incredible opportunity for that. And that assumption that's built into almost all of state and federal government work is one of the things that holds us back from being able to imagine what government could do. Yes. I wonder if there, are, are there other assumptions like that, that are sort of like baked into the fabric of the work that we might be, um, the potential for like a real shift right now
2: the assumption that you were talking about emily was was the deserving assumption like that myth
0: Yeah. we actually need to go to break in a in a couple minutes um so i but i think emily you have really pinpointed um what we in, in who practice Feng Shui talk about is original intent and how everything flows from whatever that original intent is, you know, where, where, what's the bumper sticker? Um, energy flows where thought goes or something like that. Um, but, but I think that's really key and shouldn't be underestimated because if we are baking in assumptions, that's where everything else will flow from. And, and I think the, the myth of the deserving is just the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's my hope with, with COVID that when we look back on it, we will have better data on the, the amount of need in the state and how much it would actually cost to meet that need. But it's also my fear talking about what, what Drew was saying around the limits of imagination that we will just slough that off and be like, well, it was COVID. That's not real need. Um, and, and not realize that that was actually true need regardless of a pandemic and that need still exists. Um, any quick thoughts before we head to hear from some of our underwriters? I
2: think I can hold.
0: Okay. Fantastic. So we're going to take a quick break, listeners. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 100 at 7.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And we shall return in a moment. VEW 107.7 LP, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And if you're just joining me, I am speaking with representative and regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, as well as Drew Resley, who is from the Agency of Human Services, but today talking to us with her, through her planning expertise hat. So welcome, Drew. Thank you for being on the show today. Um, just before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about assumptions that get baked into the systems we create and, and how that can kind of, uh, tangle us up. And I think for me, what I always find so amazing, um, Drew had talked about the, the assumption of poverty and how so many people just see it as natural and that it will always be there for me, the big assumption I, I always bump up against in the systems we create, is the sense that whatever the systems are doing, whether it's the economy, or poverty, or hunger, is bigger than us, and yet we are humans creating these responses, and so we can just create new responses, but yet we seem to believe that, well, it's the economy, there's nothing we can do about it. The humans created the economy,
2: <laughs> so we can make a
0: new economy but we just boy we just hit that wall
1: man and
0: and mm-hmm. it's there
1: um so
2: I, i'm there kind people of curious talk about
1: the government that's one of my like it's yours totally. yeah it's yours i promise but you know
2: what well sorry i don't want to interrupt that, you go but yeah go oh but no go ahead real. i mean that assumption is so real like and, and the justice system i think is a great example of that too like it just feels so big that you can't possibly there's a mythos around it, like it's a whole thing unto itself. Like the concept is actually—it's not bigger than the implications, that's for sure. But it's bigger than—it's—it's it's bigger than its actual access points, and and definitely it's it's possibilities for change. I think that's a really really important assumption to consider. I think sometimes even I forget that, and I work in government like oh it's it's too big it's too it's got a mind of its own but that happens when governance structures are not obvious like that happens when decision-making structures and governance processes are not transparent like that happens when people don't actually know how the budget gets decided and for people who make the budget like it, it feels obvious you know like it feels obvious um how the budget is constructed, but when it's not an inclusive process and when the process isn't available for people that it, it makes it that much more susceptible to becoming a myth and like a monolith that you can't actually access as a person. So then it's me against the system, me and my individual against the system, rather than me actually a part of the system, me a part of the collective that has created this system.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, where I see this, and this might bring us back to school openings is you know, so many people in Vermont don't understand how we fund education and that talk about an untransparent system and formula. Um, And I see it at town meeting when the town budget is debated for like an hour over a hundred dollar fee. An hour, like eight hours. (laughs) Well, I was thinking of other towns, not Brattleboro. Um. (laughs) Where were you? Other towns, not Brattleboro, um, and and the school budget passes like without discussion, because I think people are like it's it's millions of dollars, and I don't understand where it's coming and going and what it's doing. So okay, um, so so yeah, I think that that's such a great example of when things aren't transparent. How people are just like, it's too big
1: right so other the other thing that i think makes it feel too big and too overwhelming is again this absence of appropriate tools for the moment so when i think about school reopening um the idea that schools will definitely reopen has been decided at the state level through whatever metrics i'm really not entirely clear on or what factors were considered also not clear it's possible that information was shared and i just didn't catch it in my life um but The how they're going to reopen and what that will look like is decided decided at the school district level. And so there's this push and pull in the communities and I think you know different communities have very different, you know, actual buildings and those buildings have different needs and different connectivity levels for the folks living in them. And so Considering different options makes sense. And so having people have more power navigating those the how not the what Makes sense but communities right now don't have any of the tools that they need to implement that work or to make those decisions together and the party that is more resourced with regard to tools and best practices and money is the state and yet the state in removing itself from the decision making has also removed itself from the provision of resources, which is Mm -hmm. totally inappropriate. You can, and we do that all the time. We say, okay, if it's your decision, it's also your resources on the line. But it would be possible for us to say, the decision is yours and we're here with all of these resources to help you make the decision and help implement the decision once you do. But that would require a level of trust that is completely lacking. Mm -hmm. So we say we, you know, we're all about local control, but we don't actually trust local control enough to make financial decisions. We just trust them enough to fumble their way through s- scarce environments and making you know, scarce choices.
2: And then carry the accountability for that. Indeed.
1: Yeah. Accountability with no resources is um, the worst for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think tools for the moment, like I think you, you nailed what I think is the most important one for me, which is How do you build trust and neutralize the roles? Like neutralize, I guess by neutralize, I mean like make explicit the power structures and then agree as equal partners in the power structure or like equalize the power structure and then neutralize like the facts. (laughs) For instance, the state in some cases is the funder and community organizations or associations of community organizations are receiving money are the grantees and i think about this a lot and we've talked about grants on this program once before but um that that's another area where trust i think is really broken and kind of follows the the framework that you just laid out emily but um, there are ways to build trust and i think it has to do with being explicit about power i think it has to be it has to do with understanding shared accountability and responsibility for the actions that you're taking on because of your role so the state has some very specific um, activities that it needs to do well as a funder basic activities that that facilitate an easier time for grantees what are those basic activities basic activities like timeliness in routing grant agreements consistency in policy around payment provisions between different departments that may be grant providing grants to one organization um, regularity in communication availability for grantees for ta um TA. Can be, uh, technical assistance thank you and what's technical assistance the way that I mean, in this case, the way that the state might be able to provide information, skill building, um, and opportunities for like continuous improvement to grantees. So for instance, like data collection and data reporting, as well as financial monitoring and accounting, may be sort of difficult, complex systems to integrate for a small organization receiving a grant from the state. So what is the state's role in helping make sure that that grantee, that organization receiving the grant can be effective? Um, which we would want um, in order for an actual grant program and the activities therein to be useful in the community. Um, so there's a there's a reciprocal relationship, I guess, is what I'm trying to describe that I think gets really um, obscured by how much anxiety there is in a relationship that's based in a relationship that's like obligatory, but isn't based in trust. And I think that I hear that plan- that same dynamic playing out in in the world of education that you described, Emily. And I think there are some like basic tools for building trust. And I'd love to hear what you two think, but in my mind, some of those basic tools are like around consensus, decision making, clarity on roles, just basic community and relationship building, understanding of the system. So being able to together in an inclusive process, actually map the system within your working and understand your role in it. Like I think um that sometimes there's maybe just not like a a venue or an opportunity for people to come together from across their different roles so we stay bound and stuck um in who has the power and therefore the responsibility to initiate that conversation Mm -hmm. so that's i guess yeah transferable to other systems and thinking specifically about funding but also decision making authority discretion and then who actually carries real accountability
1: and in the atmosphere of the schools i think um you know there's locuses of power there, right? So there's the agency of education, which is very different from the legislature. I, you know, I wish I had more control over the agency of education than I do, but um, it's the governor who has control over the agency of education, right? And then um, we have the school districts and the school board and the superintendent are both have significant decision-making power, but they're um, In very different ways with very different accesses to information and the level of information that they each have and then we have the parents and the teachers and the teachers have tremendous collective bargaining ability. um, But don't aren't necessarily Tied into those other centers of power and then we have parents who likely do not understand all of those other things, nor should they, because what they understand is their child and their child's needs and their relationship to their um, school as an institution. And so we're seeing um, blaming and negotiation happening between each of these parties, but not necessarily with all of those parties at the table simultaneously. And I think the decision that was made to not have a statewide group navigating this means that those dynamics are playing themselves at the local level, which is further away from where the resources and the decisions are made. And so the, it keeps the system from being transparent to anyone.
0: So Emily, I really loved what you just said, um, and this is for Drew too. I, I feel a little bit, as much as I'm loving this conversation, that it's getting a little nebulous and I'd love to find some ways to make it feel a little more concrete for our listeners. Um, I think for me, what feels concrete is when you're talking about power dynamics and trust, um, how interesting it is, again, going back to this idea of local control. And yet I think when a lot of, whether it's a parent or the, or the school board or the superintendent, um, a lot of those folks feel actually disempowered by their relationship to the state. So they're like, well, we want to do, we, we want to put a new roof on the school, but because the state has these mandates, that's not where our money can go. So we have to put our, our money to these mandates because the state said so. Um, that's kind of what I'm feeling right now is what I see on the concrete level. But if there's any other kind of concreteness you can you can lend to this, I'd, I'd appreciate it.
1: So I appreciate that. Um, and I think Drew and I specialize in having extended nebulous conversation, so (laughs) I'm glad you're here. Um, When I think about those mandates being very concrete, you know, a a roof or, um, you know, diversity education, where those mandates are useful should be in creating equity of opportunity across school districts. So to move out of education for a minute, the Voting Rights Act, the purpose of it was that if we left things to state control, we would basically be back in Jim Crow with regards to voting. And so we took the control off of the states because they were not meeting some states because they were not meeting a bare minimum of rights with regards to voters we could do that same thing in vermont um, with regards to schools and say this is the bare minimum of equity that you need to meet within that do what you will Mm -hmm. Um, or we could do that with regards to policing and we don't we often have um we have guidance around policy but we don't necessarily say this is the bare minimum feel free to find a maximum And so in school districts where property taxes are um, a more difficult conversation are often those areas of the state where educational equity might be the more might be more important Mm -hmm. um, because they might be places where families are struggling more. And so places that feel the most resource scarce um, because property taxes are a greater burden on those households are the places where we might see more kids struggling that need more with regards to education. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a really good reason to remove the decision, the need for um, the wrestling with that off the community level and onto the state level. And, but when we do that, we also need to move the obligation for funding onto the state level. And that's some of what we did with act 60 said we will redistribute some of these resources so that the responsibility for equity can sit somewhere where um more neutral decisions can be made Mm -hmm. in order to benefit the whole Mm -hmm. and that is that any more tangible it is and and what it what it (laughs) reminds me of
0: You know, you're talking about equity and maybe it's there and I missed it. But I think in some ways we talk about educational opportunities and equity, which is another thing Act 46 was kind of hoping to do. Mm. Um, People can debate whether it did or not. Um, I don't know. Do we have we ever really defined what those bare minimums of equity look like? have we ever put a stake in the
1: ground and said, this is what we expect? Um, In some way, I mean, with regards to special education, and I am not an expert in education policy, so I could be going. I don't want to go too far down this road because I think I um, will be tempted to say things that I'm not actually sure about. with regards to special education yes there are bare minimum language and that's decided at the federal level um Mm -hmm. and then ironed out at the state level and we often don't meet those bare minimum requirements and we especially aren't now with covid um because we don't have the resources available to do it districts don't have or are not making the decisions about the resources um what we don't have is bare minimums around equity at the community level Mm -hmm. Um, the one place that I know that we do is um, something called the cold weather exception. Mm-hmm. And so what we've decided is that no Vermonter should freeze to death. That's a bare minimum of equity that we have put in state policy. Mm-hmm. No Vermonter should freeze to death. It's like, it's, that's bare minimum right yeah. there. Like that is as bare minimum as you can get. Um, but that's one of the only places that I'm aware of in state government where we really say like, this is the... This is as low as our human rights, human needs, basic needs can go. And when we go lower than that, the state will intervene. Um, Are there other places like that true?
2: Well, we draw boundaries, we draw lines and say you can't cross this or else all the time. Like I'm thinking about just the criminal legal system and, and there's a lot of discretion in there like around sentencing but we standardize over time in an attempt to universalize stand like minimums in some way. All of which, I mean, to go full circle and loop back just for a second, relates to our conversation about assumptions Mm -hmm. Um, because we're drawing on what we know as we work towards what we don't know. And I think about like the child welfare system um or adult protective services and like at what point will the state intervene mental health system as well like there are definitely i mean maybe that's a little bit different than the types of um sort of minimum standards that you were talking about but it's still like a universally applicable standard that we set in statute and that constrains and and shapes the world that we live in i think this is such an important conversation like around because what What you said, Emily, about, you know, the state setting minimum standards in order to ensure that people, regardless of where they're living and what their community governance systems might look like, to to ensure that there's a minimum standard of equity regardless, makes me just think about like the larger trend of sort of exporting accountability and responsibility to to the state in our case or to like a central authority in this case, maybe for protective reasons, but in other in other cases, I think we do that because we don't believe in our collective efficacy to handle issues at the community level, like especially I'm thinking about justice in particular, um, we, how much we over involve the criminal justice system and issues that we could probably take care of if we had better local systems and community systems for handling harm um, and that's, that's interesting to me, you know, with this whole conversation about planning in uncertain conditions. Like, where can, like, actually, some of what we've seen in COVID in Vermont is like mutual aid standing up and um, local or regional organizations yeah. standing themselves up to try to to try to manage scarce resources, but also recognize like abundance of community talent skills like available people, available resources that might not otherwise have been considered part of the like resource mix of what's available to support each other. So I think, you know, maybe this is a little pie in the sky and I'm definitely not an education expert um, and I didn't go to school, I didn't go to elementary school or middle school or high school in Vermont, but like there is opportunity if if we try to imagine outside of our current constraints thinking into the future, like it's, it's possible that we could see more local forms of school systems actually being able to better adjust to the, to changing conditions in a pandemic or changing conditions and awarenesses relative to equity and experience of people of color in Vermont. Like it's possible that there could be a responsivity available there that is like above and beyond the state standards. And so like, what is then, what is the what is the dynamic related to resources control accountability in order to create room for those possibilities. Do you know what I mean? It's A little mangled at the end, but I'm interested in like what happens when we over centralize responsibility or accountability for standards and what's, what's lost.
1: Because you, You've said a few times that the way to help enable our imaginations and plan in an environment of uncertainty is to make the system transparent. Right. And the more we centralize, the less transparent the system is to those people operating within it.
2: Or we'd be working in a very different looking system if it were transparent and available enough, like porous enough, that it could get close to the real challenges that it's trying to be useful to. Mm -hmm. So I'm just
0: going to break in here quickly for the benefit of our listeners on WVEW. Um, We're near the end of our slotted time for the radio, but I think this conversation is still important. So we're going to continue for just a little bit longer. Um, So make sure you head on over either to Emily's YouTube page or our Vermontitude SoundCloud page uh, later today and, um, hear the rest of this great conversation and for everyone else, uh, have a great weekend, but okay. Ready? Transition back. Um, I think what you're saying, Drew about accountability and, um, everything is, is so important because I was, I was sitting again, just bringing it back to the local level and bringing it back to trying to make it concrete. I was watching a select board meeting in Brattleboro the other day mm-hmm. where a, a community group was um, it, and the upshot is is a community group is going to be creating an RFP request for proposals to reevaluate um, public safety and community well-being in Brattleboro. and and this is also around the police department and it was a, a five hour conversation. Uh, at some, Sometimes really productive, sometimes very emotional. Um, ultimately, I think it was a great conversation. But what I found really fascinating while I was watching this is, you know, folks who had been involved in this community process, you know, they had had certain conversations and had arrived at certain assumptions and were, I think... Um, had in mind, and this is me inferring this, had in mind who this, this process was serving. Okay. And they were talking to the select board um, as if they were the enemy. Um, and, and many of their points were, were good, and yet here's the select board who is dealing with a certain legal structure that they have to follow. And they are ideally, serving the entire town, um, which means just a variety of needs. And so I'm not trying to say anyone's right or anyone's wrong. Um, but I found that that point of conflict really interesting because it felt to me like, um, the structures that were in place, the, who was accountable to who was not
1: all the same. And that's one more, it's another example um, of a dynamic that we've talked about on the Montpelier Happy Hour many times before that when we don't make space in our public processes to get um, to some sort of shared understanding of where we're starting and then a shared understanding of our ends, the conversation about means or the way we're doing stuff becomes um, both less productive and more dynamic than is necessarily than is necessary often because the part that matters is you know a shared understanding of where we are and a shared understanding of where we want to be um, and the rest of it is you know flows naturally from that but we we don't have space in many of our public processes to have those conversations first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The space in our public processes is all about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people feel powerless to establish these things and we wind up with these completely different sets of assumptions and so we talk past each other.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, I love the ends means conversation as you know, but I think that the the ends conversation can be so abstract um, and arbitrary if it if it wasn't if those ends weren't arrived at through an inclusive process especially that considers and is drawn from what our shared understanding is of where we are now um, and what we believe about where we are now what our assumptions are without that conversation I think a conversation about the ends can feel very inflated and difficult to believe and so I think that's where this trust dynamic really comes into play like I heard that in what you were saying Olga about the select board meeting like maybe people not really trusting, like, who's the process for? Like, who is this about? Because I don't feel represented. I don't feel understood in it. Um, It made me think, and I wrote down this question, like, what would we need to do if to plan, like, if to actually plan and to engage in these processes was to change? Mm -hmm. What if if it reflected, what if the change was happening right there? (laughs) Like, in the process that we're taking on in the select board meeting? And I think that's very, I think we've got to confront this central tension in our sense of what we do now in planning, like in this room with these 10 people or these 30 people is planning what will happen later. Like I think even that is this kind of like divorce, it requires a trust, a belief, a sense of what is possible, what the system is actually doing in order to move toward it. And I think we, I don't know, I think, I think that we, we do something like damaging to our own ability to trust and participate with one another when we put the change we're trying to make ahead of where we are right now. And I Thank don't want to lose
1: track and I also um, need to wrap up this conversation soon. Mm-hmm. Um, of, the, of this trust in process, and how different that is based on people's stories Mm -hmm. so um you know when door knocking um knocking people's stories for the last election i didn't have the i'm not gonna have the opportunity to do that for this election because of covid but so many folks said you know the system doesn't change regardless of who i vote for so why would i bother and like that's so real like Mm i have really very little to say in response to someone who says that to me. Like, I'll try real hard. Sorry. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, a more um, more extreme version of that or dynamic version of that story is the system has significantly harmed me. Mm -hmm. So why would I trust that it would be able to fix itself? Yes. And at this point in Vermont, we have a lot of people who live in our communities who the system has significantly harmed.
0: For for generations, not just once or twice.
2: No, that's right. And what is the point of the system? I mean, we talk about the system again. I don't want to fall into that assumption about like the system being a monolith and bigger than us. But I think there's truth to people working in service of the system, people following the footsteps of precedent of the system, Um, because there is not, there's not a sense that breaking from precedent is possible. There's not a sense that we could do something different than what has been done.
1: Because so many people who sit in positions of power right now, even small positions of power, have been served by the system. And so, one of the great divides in COVID, in, among many great divides <laughs> in COVID, was the folks who thought, oh, wow, it's finally all completely breaking apart. It's been broken for a long time. Let's put it back together differently. And the folks who thought, oh, no, it's breaking apart. Let's put it back the way it was before, because it worked okay, right? Mm-hmm. And right. that's all based on people's historic experience. Right. of government community etc as something that has served them well or something that has not served them well
0: that's right yes
1: um
0: how are you on time emily
1: i think perhaps we should wrap up this conversation sounds good Because i have to go to the super awesome data town hall about racial data that i'm so excited about nice. collaboration between um, vermont social equity caucus and the council of state governments oh. if anyone wants to join me it's at 10.
0: Oh, okay, very cool. The link's on
1: my Facebook
0: page. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> geeky that we are, that actually does, that sounds really fabulous. Um, so just to, to wrap things up quickly, Drew, do you have any thoughts you wanna leave people with?
2: Um, I think I wanna maybe just circle back to something we talked about maybe even before we went live, which is just that I think we're always planning in an unknown future Things are always uncertain. Everything is dynamic. Everything is always changing, and I think our inclination as people, especially people with power in systems, is to manage and control against something unknown. That needs to be explored. I think what the um, what the killing of George Floyd and the resulting uh, sort of like collective um, reckoning with racial injustice is doing is is showing that there are people experience current conditions that scare us or that are not safe for people and plan with an unknown future. And then there are current conditions experienced without fear for other people. And then there is planning in an unknown future. And I think our understanding of what's happening now and our ability to relate and create, understand common ground or get to common ground about how current conditions really are manifesting and what we can do about it now to adjust it is is the only way to plan an unknown. Thank
0: you, Drew. I want to leave us with that concept of trust. And I think I agree with with both with you, Drew, about the need to build it. But I think it's also really important for us right now to listen to people who don't trust the system and why they don't. Because I think in, in that experience, there is actually some nuggets that could lead us to where the system needs to shift and change um, in ways that for those of us who may not have that lived experience uh, can break out into new forms of imagination as to bring it back to the, the top of the show. So Emily or Drew, do you have a toast? If not, I can make a toast.
1: Um, I will. I'm going to toast to listening to understand rather than listening to fix. Mm.
2: Thank
1: you. Here,
0: here. Thank you everyone for joining us here on the Montpelier happy hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. We are on the radio every Friday at two. We're also on the Vermontitude SoundCloud page
1: and Facebook page. Emily, where can folks find you? emilykornheiser.org ecornheiser at gmail.com ecornheiser at ledge.state.bt.us or Facebook, Twitter and Instagram hoping to restart some community forums in the next couple of weeks
0: Thank you, Emily Kornheiser Andrew Drew Thank you for joining us today, have a great weekend everyone